On today's C.S. Lewis Daily, we continue and finish Dr. Lewis's... Was he a doctor? I believe so. I believe he was a doctor. We'll have to check that. <laughs> I believe he was a literature a PhD, a literature PhD in medieval studies. But we will continue his uh, tales, um, or more his, more his essay on his view of pacifism. We will finish that today. Start a different one tomorrow. But of checking individual voices, there would be no end. All bodies that claim to be churches, that is, who claim apostolic succession and accept the creeds, have constantly blessed what they regarded as righteous arms. Doctors, bishops, and popes, including, I think, the present pope, Pius X, he means, have again and again discountenanced the pacifist position. Nor, I think, do we find a word about pacifism in the apostolic writings, which are older than the Gospels and represent, if anything does, that original Christendom, whereof the Gospels themselves are a product. The whole Christian case for pacifism rests, therefore, on certain dominical utterances, such as, Resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn him the other also. I am now to deal with the Christian who says this is to be taken without qualification. I need not point out, for it has doubtless been pointed out to you before, that such a Christian is obliged to take all the other hard sayings of our Lord in the same way. For the man who has done so, who has every occasion given to all who ask him and has finally given all he has to the poor, no one will fail to feel respect. With such a man, I must suppose myself to be arguing for who would deem worth answering that inconsistent person who takes our Lord's words à la rigueur when they dispense him from a possible obligation and takes them with latitude when they demand that he should become a pauper. That's, he's being a little bit snide there. <laughs> there are three ways of taking the command to turn the other cheek. One is the pacifist interpretation. It means what it says and imposes a duty of non-resistance on men in all circumstances. Another is the minimizing interpretation. It does not mean what it says, but is merely an orientally hyperbolical way of saying that you should put up with a lot and be placable. Both you and I agree in rejecting this view. The conflict is therefore between the pacifist interpretation and a third one which I am now going to propound. I think the text means exactly what it says, but with an understood reservation in favor of those obviously exceptional cases, which every hearer would naturally assume to be exceptions without being told. Or, to put the same thing in more logical language, I think the duty of non-resistance is here stated as regards injuries simplicitaires, but without prejudice to anything we may have to allow later about injuries secundum quid. There is... Insofar as the only relevant factors in the case are an injury to me by my neighbor and a desire on my part to retaliate, then I hold that Christianity commands the absolute mortification of that desire. No quarter whatever is given to the voice within us which says, He's done it to me, so I'll do the same to him. But the moment you introduce other factors, of course, the problem is altered. Does anyone suppose that our Lord's hears? understood him to mean that if a homicidal maniac, a maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way, I must stand aside and let him get his victim. 
I at any rate think it impossible they could have so understood him. I think it equally impossible that they supposed him to mean that the best way of bringing up a child was to let it hit his parents whenever it was in a temper, or when it had grabbed at the jam, to give it the honey also. I think the meaning of the words was perfectly clear. Insofar as you are simply an angry man who has been hurt, mortify your anger and do not hit back. Even one would have assumed that insofar as you are a magistrate struck by a private person, a parent struck by a child, a teacher by a scholar, a sane man by a lunatic, or a soldier by the public enemy, your duties may be very different. Different because maybe then other motives than egoistic retaliation for hitting back. In these, as the audience were private people in a disarmed nation, it seems unlikely they would have ever supposed our Lord to be referring to war. War was not what they would have been thinking of. The frictions of daily life among villagers were more likely to be in their minds. I'm not sure that I agree with that, given what I know of Jewish history. But again, this is an interesting historical perspective, and it's important to listen to his ideas as well. Excuse me. That is my chief reason for preferring this interpretation to yours. Any saying is to be taken in the sense that it would naturally have borne in the time and place of utterance. But I also think that, so taking it, harmonizes better with St. Baptist's words to soldiers and with the fact that one of the few persons whom our Lord praised without reservation was a Roman centurion. It also allows me to suppose that the New Testament is consistent with itself. St. Paul approves of the magistrate's use of the sword, Romans 13.4. And so does St. Peter, 1 Peter 2.14. If our Lord's words are taken in the unqualified sense, which the pacifist demands, we shall then be forced to the conclusion that Christ's true meaning, concealed from those who lived in the same time and spoke the same language, and whom he himself chose to be his messengers to the world, as well as um, from all their successors, has at last been discovered in our own time. I know there are people who will not find this sort of thing difficult to believe, just as there are people ready to maintain that the true meaning of Plato or Shakespeare, oddly concealed from their contemporaries and immediate successors, has preserved its virginity for the daring, daring embraces of one or two modern professors. I think that is an excellent argument that he makes about the understanding of Peter and Paul, how they would have to be quite wrong. But I cannot apply to divine matters a method of exegesis which I have already rejected with contempt in my profane studies. Any theory which bases itself on a supposed historical Jesus to be dug out of the Gospels and then set up in opposition to Christian teaching is suspect. There have been too many historical Jesuses. A liberal Jesus, a pneumatic Jesus, a Barthian Jesus, a Marxist Jesus. They are the cheap crop of each publisher's list like the new Napoleons and the new Queen Victorias. It is not to such phantoms that I look for my faith and my salvation. Christian authority then fails me in my search for pacifism. It remains to inquire whether, if I still remain a pacifist, I ought to suspect the secret influence of any passion. I hope you will not here misunderstand me. I do not intend to join in any of the jibes to which those of your persuasion are exposed in the popular press. Let me say at the outset that I think it unlikely there is anyone present less courageous than myself. Oh, that's... But let me also say that there is no man alive so virtuous that he need feel himself insulted at being asked to consider the possibility of a warping passion when the choice is one between so much happiness and so much misery. 
For let us make no mistake, all that we fear from all the kinds of adversity severally is collected together in the life of a soldier on active service. Like sickness, it threatens pain and death. Like poverty, it threatens ill-lodging, cold, heat, thirst, and hunger. Like slavery, it threatens toil, humiliation, injustice, and arbitrary rule. Like exile, it separates you from all you love. Like the galleys, it imprisons you at close quarters with uncongenial companions. It threatens every temporal evil, every evil except dishonor and final perdition, and those who bear it like it no better than you would like it. On the other side, though it may not be your fault, it is certainly a fact that pacifism threatens you with almost nothing. Some public opprobrium, yes, from the people whose opinion you discount and whose society you do not frequent, soon recompensed by the warm mutual approval which exists inevitably in any minority group. And again, here, historically, I would disagree. I think anyone who has seen or read the stories of the young pacifist medic that I've mentioned before at Heartbreak Ridge in the United States who suffered extensively and was extensively beaten um, for his pacifism. I think what one could argue that his case is unique in that most pacifists do not then join the army um, because he believed in the Allied cause but did not believe in killing which is fascinating. So I think that his view of the army would have been more as a large peace organization or a sacrificial organization, um, perhaps impractical and quite ideal, quite idealized. I don't. I would love to see the world in which, in which perhaps that that's what people do. Um, but certainly he suffered a great deal. And again, you can look him up. I would I would say you should Google American Medic Heartbreak Ridge. Um, Pacific War Pacifist. Um, it threatens every some public opprobrium. For the rest, it offers you a continuance of the life you know and love among the people and in the surroundings you know and love. It offers you time to lay the foundations of a career. For whether you will or no, you can hardly help getting the jobs for which the discharged soldiers will one day look in vain. You do not even have to fear, as pacifists may have had to fear in the last war, that public opinion will punish you when the peace comes. For we have learned now that the world is slow to forgive, but it is quick to forget. This, then, is why I am not a pacifist. If I tried to become one, I should find a very doubtful factual basis, an obscure train of reasoning, a weight of authority both human and divine against me, and strong grounds for suspecting that my wishes had directed my decision. As I have said, moral decisions do not admit of mathematical certainty. It may be, after all, that pacifism is right. What a good statement. Moral decisions do not admit of mathematical certainty. It may be, after all, that pacifism is right, but it seems to me, in very long odds, longer odds than I would care to take with the voice of almost all humanity against me. And I think that's the strongest argument, but at the same time, all humanity can be wrong. So, I'm not making the, the pacifist argument, but I'm saying I, it's possible and I have a significant amount of respect, both for Mr. Lewis and his opposition in this argument. I'm a member of the U.S. military, and I have a lot of feelings and questions about the merits of pacifism as well. So, you should.
share this podcast and put your own thoughts. And feel free, if you're on something like Podbean, um, to comment on what you think and believe. Now, please um, do not forget our sponsor, which is Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli, a book about finding God in Palablas, Tarantulas, uh, Thermodynamics, and Mario. It's a little book all about um, strange meditations on the divine. Excuse me again, I'm very tired. I was woken up by a scammer this morning, very early. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you very well, and I will hear you soon, or you will hear me soon, in the next C.S. Lewis Daily. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.